One of the books by C.S. Lewis that I've probably read four or five times in preparation for the series, um, C.S. Lewis tells a story of this kind of ancient mystery uh, that, as I, I, it took me forever to find it, but when I dug it up, it turns out it's kind of more of a controversy uh, than a mystery. This Roman general uh, during the reign of Nero named Marcus Anton, Ant, Antonius Primus, Marcus Antonius Primus, conquered a city of uh, Cremonia. Uh, he destroyed some things outside the city, and the city came and sued for peace. So they came in and made peace with him and invited him into the city uh, as kind of the conqueror, basically to save the city. Um, shortly after this, his army came in and completely sacked the city. Uh, utterly barbarous uh, in a time when this was beyond normal barbarity. Uh, and, uh, and they did terrible, terrible things to the people of the city. Uh, and Primus later... Uh, claim that he did not give the army permission to do this, that this happened without his uh, say, uh, hoping to kind of save face when he got back to Rome uh, because he was kind of called into the Senate to, to answer for this. And the controversy comes into play because of a single phrase that Primus said while uh, taking a bath. He went to the public bath to wash off the blood and dust and everything from the skirmishes they had had outside the city and when he got into the bath, it wasn't completely hot yet. And uh, the bath attendant was in there, and he kind of complained about it. And, and, uh, and he said, never mind. Uh, I want to get the quote right, actually. He said, uh, no matter, it will soon be hot enough. Uh, and so shortly thereafter, his army comes in, trashes the place. The bath attendant survives and testifies uh, of this phrase, a single phrase, that Primus had said in the bath, no matter, it'll soon be hot enough. And so uh, to this day, every historians divide over whether uh, Antonius Primus was a, a good senator or a bloodthirsty evil general. And all because of this one phrase and how this one phrase is interpreted. Did he say it to as a precursor to the attack that was about to happen? Or was he just understanding that the water takes time to heat up and soon enough it'll be hot. Um, nobody really knows. Uh, Tacitus, uh, the Roman historian who writes about this story, uh, says of Primus that he is uh, uh, terrible at peace uh, but great at war was kind of his catchphrase. This guy is terrible at peace and great at war uh, because Tacitus believed that he sued for peace, he got the city to surrender, and then he just destroyed it. But uh, all because of a phrase, it will soon be hot en enough. Who among us has not had our words twisted, misunderstood, uh, and misinterpreted? Uh, especially concerning how we originally intended it. My third son, Elijah, who's not even in here, I'm going to talk about him, he's not even in here. Uh, we were bantering back and forth one night, and kind of being playful and hollering at each other. And he made a phrase, and I can't even remember what the phrase was, but my response was going to be, yeah, you were, uh, or yeah, you are, um, to what he said. My, my response, I had it ready, yeah, you are. Uh, but I was a little slow in giving my response, my, my response, and so just before I gave it, he said something about something being a mistake. And I answered back, yeah, you are. <laughs> And so to this day, no matter how many times I try to explain to him, it was just bad timing. You're totally misinterpreting my words. 
He won't let me live down the fact that I called him a mistake. Uh, None of us like having things read into our words. We want people to take from our words exactly what we intended when we said or wrote them. And because of this, most of us would make absolutely terrible biblical writers. Because part of biblical interpretation is seeing beyond what the original author meant. This is one of the thrills and challenges of studying a text that is not only inspired but living and active, is that oftentimes we have to try to figure out what the original author was saying to the original audience in the original time, but also try and figure out what the original author might have been saying uh, without even knowing it to our time and to our, uh, uh, to our context. So as we try to sort out uh, passages, we have to, there's multiple interpretations. Sometimes it has a historical fulfillment that we can exactly point to. Then sometimes it also has a future fulfillment that we, we try our best to understand. And then oftentimes it just speaks to the heart of the individual reading it. And so people would ask, which interpretation is true? Which one's the right interpretation? And too often we have to say yes. Yes, they're all, they all have the potential to be true. Multi-layered complexity is what the Bible's about. Well, tonight we're going to talk just a little bit about this because we're going to get into what we call the Messianic Psalms. This, uh, these Psalms that David wrote that gave such an unbelievably clear picture of the future Messiah that, uh, that they, they kind of, and it's, it's as many as 25%, one in six Psalms are classified Messianic. Like David had um, kind of a, a, a deep understanding of, of something or at least tapped into something um, about the future Messiah that has not only in Christianity, where we can kind of look back with hindsight and say, wow, that looks exactly like Jesus, but even in the Jewish context, they, they recognized that many of his psalms were talking about this future Messiah that was to be. So even very soon after David, his, his, uh, his psalms were understood to be prophesying and talking about this coming Messiah. And we're going to talk a little bit about why, why that might be. And so, studying Messianic Psalms is a deep and wide field, and especially when we get into the Jewish understanding, um, which I think is super important, and it's, it's, it can change our understanding sometimes when we understand how they originally understood some of these prophetic Psalms. But tonight, for tonight's study, we're going to stick with kind of the classic Christian understanding of the Messianic Psalms, which is, that a great many of these psalms were talking about Jesus' birth, life, death, and resurrection, and eternal reign. And the first thing we have to establish about these Messianic psalms is that these references to Jesus are not just kind of divinely inspired accidents. These aren't just the Holy Spirit kind of sneaking in to, to David's poetry and songs and art, this kind of hidden meaning. David had a hand in this. David knew that he was writing about the Messiah. He actually knew that he was writing um, about this kind of cosmic character that was going to come on the scene. So we're going to start by looking at the narrative tonight, and then we'll get a little bit into the art. Um, And I want to set this up mostly so I don't have to read a whole bunch. Um, But David moves into his palace in Jerusalem and pretty much immediately recognizes that while he's living in what he says to be a great cedar palace, the ark of God is in a tent outside. And so he kind of gets into his heart that he wants to build God a temple. Um, for the ark, because he's in a big palace. He wants God to have a big house. And, uh, and so he goes to Nathan the prophet and kind of says, I would like to build 
um, a temple for God. And Nathan originally kind of says, yes, hey, go for it. Do whatever's in your heart. But as Nathan goes back and prays about it, he comes back with a little different message, um, which is kind of what I want to get into, in, into tonight. And this kind of changed David's entire world. So he says, uh, now go and say to my servant David, this is what God said to Nathan. Now go and say to my servant David, this is what the Lord of Heaven's armies has declared. I took you from tending sheep in the pasture and selected you to be the leader of my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have destroyed all of your enemies before your eyes. Now I will make your name as famous as anyone who has ever lived on the earth. And I will provide a homeland for my people Israel, planting them in a secure place where they will never be disturbed. Evil nations won't oppress them as they've done in the past, starting from the time I appointed judges to rule over to rule my people Israel, and I will defeat all of your enemies. Furthermore, I declare that the Lord will build a house for you, a dynasty of kings. And when you die and join your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, one of your sons. I will make his kingdom strong. He will be the one who will build a house, a temple for me. I will secure his throne forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. I will never take my favor from him as I took it from the one who ruled before you. I will confirm him as king over my house and my kingdom for all time. And his throne will be secure forever. This is called the Davidic covenant. Um, It basically says that David will have an heir who will rule on uh, God's throne forever. Um, So when Jesus comes along and blind Bartimaeus cries out, O son of David, have mercy on me. Um, This is a very intentional and very loaded phrase. Like he's packing into it all of this understanding of who this son of David might be. This isn't, he's not just picking a, a cool name for Jesus that basically says, you know, hey, I know that you're a descendant of David's, but he's, he's saying you are the son of David. Um, so this is a loaded word in the Jewish context. He's referring back to this Davidic covenant. Well, David's life uh, changes the day that Nathan tells him um, about his heir. And David prays kind of this beautiful prayer um, that I'm just going to read a couple verses of. It goes like this. Uh, it goes on and on, but he says, Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and prayed, Who am I, O Lord? And what is my family that you have brought me this far? And now, O God, in addition to everything else, you speak of giving your servant a lasting dynasty? You speak as though I were someone very great, O Lord God. What more can I say to you about the way you have honored me? You know what your servant is really like. I love that last part. It's almost like he's saying, I have all these people snowed, but you know what's really in my heart. You know about all the doubt and confusion and and uh, and fear and anxiety. Like, what are you doing? You know me. You know I don't deserve this. But uh, uh, but this, yeah, so good. I think David is so rich in just good humanity, like good psychology. He's such a human character, such an accessible character. Um, and I love this line. You know, you know what your servant is really life like. Well, before we get too deep um, into. David and and where he goes with this, uh, I do want to look at the actual Davidic covenant for just a minute and kind of draw some attention to just how complicated um, interpreting passages like this can be. I want to look at just a couple of them. First is this one. This is in the Davidic covenant. Furthermore, I declare the Lord will build a house for you, a dynasty of kings. 
For when you die and join your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, one of your sons, and I will make his kingdom strong. He will, uh, he is the one who will build a house, a temple for me. Now, historically, this is pretty cut and dry. This is super easy um, to understand. David's direct descendant, Solomon, um, fits this prophecy perfectly, he, to a T. Um, he's one of David's sons. His kingdom turns out to be larger um, and more successful than David's, um, kind of like it says. And he's the one who does actually build God a temple. And so Solomon, you know, when we look back at it historically, fits the Davidic covenant perfectly. It looks like a perfect fit um, in Solomon until you get to the next verse. The next verse says, and I will secure his throne forever. I will be his father. He will be my son. I will never take my favor from him as I took it from the one who ruled before you. I will confirm him as a king over my house and my kingdom for all time. And his throne will be secure forever. Those are back to back verses. Solomon does not fit this part. Um, Solomon, uh, you know, it, it says that uh, I will secure his throne forever. Solomon's throne lasted about 10 minutes after he died. His son wouldn't listen to the people. They came to him and said, hey, would you lighten up the, the workload a little bit and we'll serve you faithfully? And he was like, I'm going to double, you know, my dad's work was like my thigh. I'm going to make it like my waist. I'm going to double the work I put on you. And they were like, fine, we're out. And so they split the kingdom um, and thought Solomon's throne, you know, didn't, didn't last one more generation after him. So he didn't exactly secure the throne forever. Um, the father and son part's a little vague. We obviously look back and see more in that than they would have. I don't think they would have considered it as literal as it turns out to be in Jesus. But, um, but this doesn't fit David. As Christians, we obviously look back with you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, and we see Jesus all over this verse. We see Jesus. It's, it just jumps out of as clear as a bell. I will be his father. He will be my son. I'll never take my favor from him as I took it from the one who ruled before you. And so um, Solomon doesn't fit this part. And so we're stuck with this uh, understanding of which is which. You know, and the easy answer is to say, you know, well, Jesus fits this better. So maybe Jesus fits the first part, in which case we have to question what what does this temple mean? And and uh, and and there's still a, a little bit of a fit in that Jesus poured out his spirit in the church and the church kind of becomes the temple of God, like that we we walk around with the spirit of God in us. So we kind of become the temple. But then we have to wonder, then what is all of this talk in the scripture about this building that was built. Solomon builds a building and God pours his spirit out on it thick. And Jesus even shows up in my father's house to be a house of prayer and turns over tables. And so there, there seems to be so much scripture about the building that's important. Um, and yet, if the building's important, then that has to point to Solomon. So it just shows how complicated um, interpreting some of these prophetic scriptures can be. A lot of them, there's a very clear historical fulfillment while at the same time, there's this kind of unfinished part that we have to, to deal with. So the most common interpretation for this passage is, is both, that, that God is simultaneously talking about both Solomon and Jesus. Um, and in a sense, Solomon becomes kind of an image of, of Jesus. So he's talking about both. But I believe what Nathan would have been talking about, at least in his own context, what David would have heard and had recorded was probably Solomon, or at least one of David's direct heirs, or maybe some continuous lineage of heirs to heirs to heirs to heirs. But I don't think anybody in that room would have pictured Jesus showing up a thousand years later and fulfilling the scripture. Um, but, uh, but we get to look back and kind of see that. So anytime we're dealing with interpreting biblical prophecy, 
we have to be careful that we, we don't overlook what the author intended, that we try to parse out what he was saying, while at the same time not closing the door on the fact that there's a very, very good chance it was also talking to us or talking to a, a later time. But for tonight's study, what I really want to look at um, is the way that this interaction shapes David's art and kind of shapes his, really his life and, and what changes in David's life after this conversation. David knew he was supposed to have an eternal heir. That kind of changes everything. It, it, and we're going to see in some of his psalms that it totally changed the way um, his art came out. We talked about once he became king, his art completely changed to this kind of corporate thing. You know, now he's writing music for groups of people and he's even putting lines in it like let all Israel say, you know. So he kind of shifted from these very personal songs you know, especially in, when he was in his exile, these lament psalms that are me and I and very, you know, almost selfish at times. Like he's, he's talking about his own life and his own heart and, and uh, to kind of to the expense of what's going on out there. And then all of a sudden he's king and now he's writing music that incorporates all of Israel. Now he's writing for corporate worship, for very big groups. Well, that kind of happens again. His art shifts again after this uh, interaction. Um... And David's not the only author who does this. David, David kind of consciously from this point on starts to weave an understanding of this covenant into his music. He starts to talk about, you know, the fulfillment of this on purpose. Um, so this is when prophecy gets kind of confusing because some secular authors even, even did this. Plato, in his kind of famous piece, The Republic, is talking about virtue. And he says... Uh, he actually says, you know, that most virtue has a selfish aspect. We do good so that we don't go to prison or we do good because it makes us feel good to do it. Or we do good because people pat us on the back every time we're virtuous. So he was kind of explaining that virtue tends to be a little bit selfish. And so he's like, so if you really want to understand virtue, uh, you would have to imagine a virtuous person who comes and is treated like a monster who's coming. He's treated like the bad guy for being virtuous and yet continues to be virtuous despite the fact that he's getting no reward for it. And Plato kind of in his imagination starts to theorize what this might look like. What would it look like if, if a truly virtuous person showed up on earth and, and there was no reward for his virtue? He just did good because it was the right thing to, get, to do. And what he actually says is, he says, I believe this man would be bound and scourged and finally impaled because the world could not handle that level of purity. And so here you have Plato, and, and obviously has no idea Jesus is going to exist. This is three or four hundred years before Jesus. Um, you have Plato kind of painting a pretty darn good picture, almost prophetic picture of what happens when Jesus does show up. And that leaves, you know, there was actually a time in kind of, Medieval Christianity, when they almost declared, they, well, they did declare Plato what they called a secular prophet. Like, so a person who is gifted with the gift of prophecy outside of, of the kind of people of God. Uh, because they were like, he just got too, he nailed it. Like, he absolutely nailed the story of Jesus. Crucifixion didn't exactly exist yet in the context that it was Jesus. So he didn't explain the crucifixion, but he did explain almost exactly what happens to Jesus. Well, C.S. Lewis kind of unpacks this a little bit. And the way he explains it, he explains prophecy in kind of three different potential contexts. He said, you might have, you know, a religious figure who, let's say he prophesies about an alien. And then not long after humans get the 
ability to travel in space and they find that exact alien that fits the description perfectly. You would declare that to be kind of the divinely inspired prophecy that we talk about when we talk about prophecy. He said, but that's very different than, you know, an artist who just, while painting, you know, paints an alien and it happens to get really, really close to an alien we find later. He was like, that, you know, we would just call dumb luck and it does happen. Even a broken clock is right twice a day, you know, kind of thing. It, It happens. It was like, but that's altogether again different from, let's say, a biologist who studies the creatures of Earth and our environment and then says, if we found a planet with this kind of environment, it would only make sense that this kind of creature would develop in that kind of environment. And then we travel and we find a planet that matches his description and we find creatures that match his description. We wouldn't necessarily call that like divinely inspired prophecy. We would, we would say that that is, you know, somebody... So, that's probably what Plato was doing. He was, he was saying, you know, if virtue is what it is and if the world is what it is and a truly virtuous person showed up, this is kind of what I think would happen. I think if you took Plato ahead in time and he saw Jesus, he would probably go, I, I told you so. That's exactly what I said would, would happen. And that's not necessarily divinely probably. Well, David, I think, has all of these going on. I think David sometimes just happened to hit crazy lucky. Sometimes... He's theorizing what an eternal heir might look like, how, how this might play out, what, how the world might treat somebody you know, who's going to be on the throne forever and, and theorize really close. And then there's some times that David just, I think, is absolutely inspired by the Holy Spirit uh, to, um, to prophesy of this. All this is going on in his art. Uh, one of the... <laughs> One of the passages I kind of actually want to... Oh, and then on top of this, one of the things we do have to kind of throw in there is Jesus also plays in on this. Jesus very obviously understands himself to be this messianic character. And so he was very familiar with the scriptures. When Jesus is on the cross and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me from Psalms 22? He's choosing those words. So part of this is initiated also by Jesus where he understands himself to be this figure. He knows this figure is going to say certain things and do certain things. And so some of the things, I mean, he even says it a few times. He tells the, the uh, disciples, you know, go and get a sword because we have to fulfill this one prophecy. And, he, and, and so, like, he, he almost chooses to fulfill this one because he knows this is part of the package and I have to fill it. So that's playing in too. So we have a lot going on in messianic um, prophetic uh, stuff or prof- uh, messianic prophetic scripture. But David uh, writes music, and one of the things I do want to point out, this is one of those passages that I like going at Scripture cynically. I like trying to, to not believe in Scripture just to see if, if it holds up. Like, I, I know that I can pack myself full of confirmation bias. I know I can find ten great verses that are going to, you know, fit everything perfect. I like to go out and go, okay, so what might be another explanation for this? Let's kick that one out. Let's kick, just to see what I wind up with. And there's a, there's a handful in David's... Uh, stuff that I, I think are just purely the Holy Spirit. One of them is this. My enemies surround me like a pack of dogs. An evil gang closes in on me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. This is from Psalms 22. Uh, this is written in about 1000 BC. And crucifixion shows up about 700. So the crucifixion doesn't even exist when this is written. And it doesn't really come into you know, Greco-Roman Hellenistic culture until like almost 300, you know, and then by the time Jesus comes, it's a regular form of execution. Uh, But David somehow sees the piercing of the hands and feet, you know, 
a thousand years early. Like, and, and so there was a ton of these that no matter, and Jesus couldn't have chosen to fulfill the scripture. Like, a lot of times in these messianic uh, psalms, David is clearly prophesying, you know, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, things that there's no way he could have imagined. There's no reason to imagine this eternal king would be pierced like this. There's, so uh, a lot of what David's doing here is absolutely um, prophetic in the classic Christian sense. But tonight, um, it, we're not trying to do a, like apologetics and prove the veracity of messianic um, psalms. Uh, suffice it to say, Jesus fits. <laughs> we're just going to leave it at that tonight. Jesus fits David's picture of the Messiah. And both sides, the suffering Messiah as well as the, the ruling Messiah. Today what I actually want to do is talk about the change in David himself after this conversation uh, with Nathan. Because David's entire focus changes at this point. Um, and what's interesting is David spends 15 to 20 years under kind of under the expectations that came with an anointing by Samuel and kind of a prophecy. You're, you're the king's anoint, you're the Lord's anointed king. And so David, it's like 15 to 20 years before he's actually the king from that moment. So he lives kind of under the pressure of this prophecy, of this kind of understanding of the future. And he's king for like 10 minutes. And Nathan comes in and he goes, oh, by the way, you're going to have an heir that's going to rule forever. And so immediately, you know, David's vision has to shift from what do I want to do as king to what do I want my dynasty to be like everything changes. Um, one of the part I love most about David is that he's completely okay with this. Like he sits down in front of God and was like, this is amazing. Like, and cause when you think about it, God doesn't come in and go, you know, Hey, you're going to have a great life. You're going to kick back tons of good stuff. Blah, blah, blah. God looks right past David. God comes in and goes, Oh, by the way, it's not about you. It's about past you. It's about beyond you. Um, and, and David starts to weave this in to his art. Let's look at uh, Psalms 110. This is a messianic Psalm of David. A Psalm of David. The Lord said to my Lord, Sit in the place of honor at my right hand until I humble your enemies, making them a footstool under your feet. The Lord will extend your power or your powerful kingdom from Jerusalem so anytime we have a mention of Jerusalem, we know that in David's narrative, it had to happen kind of after he became king. So it kind of, anytime you see Jerusalem show up in a psalm, it dates it a little bit. We know that it's at least from the time, because you've got to remember, David conquered Jerusalem. Jerusalem didn't exist as Jerusalem prior to David being king. So this can't be one of his earlier psalms. The Lord will extend your powerful kingdom from Jerusalem. You will rule over your enemies when you go to war your people will serve you willingly. You are arrayed in holy garments and your strength will be renewed each day like the morning dew. The Lord has taken an oath and will not break his vow. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. The Lord stands at your right hand to protect you. He will strike down many kings when his anger erupts. He will punish the nations and fill their land with corpses. He will shatter heads over the whole earth. He will, uh, but he himself will be refreshed from brooks along the way. He will be victorious. I love the way this one starts, and it kind of shows David's understanding the second he hears this prophecy from Nathan. He says, the Lord said to my Lord. Jesus actually pulls this up. They come to 
to him about being the son of David. He goes, hey, by the way, how does David uh, say the Lord said unto my Lord? You know, how does a future guy become David's Lord? And, uh, and kind of tangles the Pharisees up and they can't really answer. But, uh, but David, obviously, from the minute Nathan speaks, sees himself as below whoever this future guy is, this, this messianic character. He calls him my Lord uh, kind of right off the bat. David doesn't need to be the story. That's what I love most about the way David takes this news. He, he doesn't need to be the, the, the central figure. Um, he's thrilled to just be part of the story. David doesn't need to be the entire picture. He's happy to be a piece of the puzzle. And all this because David has the ability to embrace a long-term goal. That's kind of where I want to go tonight. David has the ability... Um, he has vision, which is, is huge. One of the kind of juxtapositions that, that really reveals this is Hezekiah to his like, great-grandson Josiah. I don't know if any of you guys know these stories, but Hezekiah found out he was going to die. A prophet came to him and said, hey, you're going to die. And Hezekiah kind of pouts and throws a fit, and God gives him 15 more years. But kind of the caveat is those 15 years, he basically trashes Israel. He makes some huge mistakes in those last 15 years he technically wasn't supposed to have. Um, he invites some envoys from Babylon to come into the temple and look at all the riches. Like, look at how much stuff we have. And they're like, awesome, we'll be back. And so they, like, and, and, and they kind of take inventory and then they show back up to sack the place later. And then he also gives birth to a son who the Bible says is the worst king Israel ever had. Manasseh turned out to be the absolute worst king they ever had. And so some bad things happen in there. And the prophet tells Hezekiah this is going to happen. But then he says, but you'll have peace in your reign. And Hezekiah literally goes, well, at least I'll have peace in my reign. Like, pardon my language, screw the future. At least I'm going to be okay. Well, then comes his grandson or great-grandson, I can't remember, Josiah, who becomes king when he's basically a teenager and he's trying to clean out the temple and he finds the scrolls, finds the, the, the Torah, and he reads it and finds out that Israel's not doing anything right. They're not doing anything the way they were originally supposed to. So he sets about cleaning up um, Israel, he's knocking down places for idol worship and, and all these uh, poles and all this stuff, trying to cleanse the nation, which, you know, when you think about any teenager, you know, um, given the, the opportunity to be king... And go, hey, I can kind of have whatever I want. I'm king. I can literally live in luxury. Or I can make my life about... And by then, the destruction of Israel had already been kind of prophesied. Like, and so he knew, you know, I could just totally go, you know what, I'm just going to kick back and enjoy. Or I can kind of sacrifice my time and my life and hopefully make the nation better for the future. And, and so he kind of goes the opposite way of Hezekiah and he sacrifices his time to make the future better. And, and those two kind of sit in the scripture as contrasting characters. One who basically forget the future long as I have something good. And the other one is like, I don't care if I have something good. We need to make the future better. Um, actually, I came in contact with this in the, in the, and one of the verses that, kind of made me decide to go into children's ministry was in Genesis 15. Um, and I actually kind of want to read this one. He said, whoops, didn't quite fit. Sometime later, so this is Abraham. Abraham's following God. He left his father's house. 
he's wandering um, and he's, he's living under this promise that he's going to have a son, that he's going to have an heir, but it hasn't happened yet. And God uh, says, sometimes later, the Lord spoke to Abram uh, in a vision and said to him, do not be afraid, Abram, I will protect you uh, and your, your reward will be great. But Abram replied, O sovereign Lord, what good are all your blessings when I don't even have a son? Since you've given me no children, Eliezer of Damascus, a servant in my household, will inherit my wealth. And this is another one of those verses when I imagine anybody I know today, if God came to him and said, you know, I am going to make your name great. I'm going to just dump blessings and rewards on you. Most of us would go, bring it on. Like, bring on the blessings. Bring on the rewards. I'll take it. You know, dump it. I'm here. And Abram, it's very interesting because he goes, that does me no good. Blessing me does me no good if I don't have someone to hand it to, if I don't have someone to give it to. If, it, if, if you bless me, and I, so this is like the opposite of Hezekiah. If you bless me and I die and it just goes away, what good was it? Like, I don't need blessing that bad. Don't, don't even bother blessing me if you're not going to bless the next generation. This kind of became like the heart of my kids' ministry, you know, because we pray, God, you know, pour out your spirit on us. God, you know, do something amazing in our midst. And if it's not happening in there also, then we don't want it to happen in here. Like if, it, if God is not grabbing our children's hearts, then it's a, it's a waste. It's just we get to feel God's presence for a couple of years, then it's done. Like, so my kind of passion for children's ministry became, God, don't even bother blessing us if you're not also going to bless our kids, if you're not also going to pour this out on the next generation. As much as we can want God to move, here we have to also insist or, you know, Abraham, and what's funny is Abraham was, anytime you hear Abraham have an exchange with God, Abraham was very, uh, uh, almost, you could tell he was scared. You know, when he, he has this kind of ongoing thing, God had told him he was going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And Abraham's like, hey, what if, would you destroy the whole city and kill 50 righteous people? There's 50. And God's like, if you find 50, I'll save it. And he's like, okay, well, I'll but the fun thing about reading that is every time Abraham goes back, he goes, I'm so sorry. Let, let me speak one more time, if, if I can, please. Like, and he's very gentle with the way he talks to God. Like, please let your servant's you know, life be precious in your sight. Give me one more chance to speak. If there's 30, would you destroy the 30? And, and, he, and he's, so he's... So to hear Abraham go, Oh, sovereign Lord, what good are your blessings when I don't even have a son? Like, that's, you don't usually hear Abraham being that kind of snotty. Like, and so... Uh, you could kind of see how serious this was to him. Uh, which brings us to our response. This is what we're talking about tonight. Our response is simple. We have to, to learn to have a long-term vision. We have to learn to, have, uh, to be more like David and look beyond ourselves. What I love so much about David in this epic is that he learns um, to be a, cog, a little cog in a big wheel. Like to be just a little piece of a very, very big story. Um, David, you know, up until this point, he's so much the center of attention. When we read about David's story, we read about, you know, this huge figure in the scripture that, you know, his name is so giant to us. And in David's eyes, the second he hears this prophecy, you know, he kind of, first he sits down like, who am I? Why would you do this for me? And then in his art, he starts talking about this future guy. He doesn't spend any time going, 
being king is awesome, and I'm a great king, and I'm, I'm doing a pretty darn good job. He sees right past himself, and he starts talking about this future guy's reign and where, where the people of God are going to be down the road and in the future. I think this is one of the biggest problems with our politics today, honestly, is you know, when you're only making decisions four years at a time, when your focus is getting reelected, it's really hard to make decisions that are good for the country long term because you just got to make sure you get. And really, any time power comes into play, it, it happens in marriage. When you're, when you're in the middle of an argument, rarely are you thinking what is good for our relationship long term. You're thinking about how to win that argument. I don't want to lose power here. I want to win this argument. Or parenting. Like a lot of times we'll say terrible things to our kids because we want to win the moment. Instead of thinking, I'm, I'm trying to raise, you know, a, a well-rounded person who is obeying and following God for their life. And, but at that moment, you're like, I just want quiet for 10 seconds. Shut up! You know, and we'll, we'll say some horrible things so that we win the moment rather than winning, you know. Everybody's like, yeah, that's exactly how it goes. Um, please tell me that's not wrong. But uh, it happens in our work lives. It happens in our education. Like... We're, we, we get such a short focus sometimes that we, we start missing, you know, the long game. There's one thing I love about the Christian narrative is that we're part of a really big story. We're part of a really big story. Like, this is, we, could, we trace our lineage and we talk all the time about stuff that happened thousands of years ago that, that bears directly on our lives we're, we're, and we have such a tendency to think about our part in it and, and what God is doing in our life and am I hearing from God right and am I doing everything God wants me to do and, and sometimes we forget that we're part of a really big narrative. We're part of a really big story. We stand on the shoulders of a lot of people who went before us and hopefully a lot of people will stand on our shoulders and we will create you know, a church, capital C church, not just Open Table, but a church that is strong and healthy for our kids and grandkids and, and kids behind it. Tonight we sang Be Thou My Vision, um, which is a poem that was written in the 6th century in Ireland, so 700 and some odd. Uh, and, wait, no, 500 and some odd. Uh, and was set to music in 1912, and then the version we sang was modernized and recorded in 2014. Like, that's a big... That's a big chunk. What other music other than in the church are people singing, you know, that is, what are 1,500 years old that they're now playing with electric guitar and fancy drums? Like, we're part of a big story. Like, we're, we're tied into a lot that went before us. And too often, as we stand here in this gigantic stream, we're making tiny little decisions. Do I want to go this way or this way? This way? You know, and uh, that just affect our lives. We have to live our faith in such a way that people generations from now are still following Christ faithfully because of the impact. We have, we have to do art and creativity in a way that impacts people 1,500 years from now uh, if Jesus waits that long to return. We have to pray for generations. We need to start to think and pray and, and plan for our kids' grandkids and their grandkids and and where the church will be a long time from now. And most of all, we have to raise our kids this way. And we have to, we have to impact 
the kids in our kids' ministries this way. We have to start thinking about what the church is going to be like for them and, and, and start planning and praying and, and living in such a way that the church will be strong for them. So though we always have to make short-term decisions to survive, you know, what am I going to eat tomorrow is, is important, and we have, to, we have to sort that out. Um, we also have to stretch our vision farther. We have to start to have a, a long-term vision. I was actually talking to a couple this week, and, and uh, it's this thing that Esther and I used to do, we, we call reverse engineering, where we would we'd talk about what we want our life to look like in 15 years. And then, okay, well, if, if we were to get there, what would it look like in 10 years? And if we were to get there, what would it look like in five years? And if we're going to get there, what do I have to do tomorrow? Like looking down the road and then, and then coming all the way back. And usually most of the times I've lost weight, they've started that way. Like where do you want to be in 15 years? First, alive, <laughs> which means I probably need to make some changes tomorrow. You know, like, but it's, it's looking down the road. And, and as Christians, as being part of this gigantic stream that we're part of, we need to start asking the question, what do we want the church to look like in 100 years? What do we want the church to look like? What do we want the church to stand for? And what kind of impact do we want the church to have in, in our culture and in our community and you know, in, the, in the, the greater narrative of humanity in 500 years? And, and if that's the church we want, you know, starting with, we want it to still be here, we want there to still be faithful, then, then what do we need to do tomorrow? that's going to impact the church in the long haul? What, what kind of relationship do we want to have with the world? Do we want to have this combative where we're, you know, they're the bad guy and we're always fighting with them? Or do we want to, to have this thing where the church, the world looks at the church like those people are crazy, but they take care of widows and orphans and they're, they're, they, they treat people well and they're, you know, they're faithful and, and they're nice. Like, if, if that's the image we want people to have of the, of the church in 100 years, we need to make changes tomorrow to get there. We need to start treating people differently because we don't want the church to be this ugly, combative, you know, enemy. We want the church to be this loving place that, you know, that is faithful in its own community, but also serving and making the world better and brighter. And they're like, we don't know, but they're, they sure take care of people. You know, they... And, and if we want the church to be here as that symbol, we have to make those changes now. My hope is that we will respond to this message by always fighting to think and pray and create and love and grow and live um, in open table in a way that is less about us and more about the future, more about generations to come. The second David talked to Nathan, his vision changed. Like you can see it in his art. He was now thinking about something different. He was now thinking in a different direction. He was no longer just thinking about him. He was thinking about generations to come. He's now thinking about the future. And the second Nathan gives him this promise, David's vision uh, for his art shifts. And he's now, he's now living in the future. He no longer sees himself as part of the story of David. He see, finds himself in the story of God. He understands that he's part of, he's part of a very big story. And, and, he's a, and he's a supporting character in that story. I pray that we might be drawn in as well. Let's go to the table. Lord Jesus, I thank you that 
you saw beyond yourself. Your word says that for the joy that was set before you, you endured the cross. That you had generations. You, you prayed on your last night that, that you weren't just praying for your disciples, but you were praying for everyone who comes to believe in you. That you were thinking of us in that moment. You were thinking of this night. You were thinking of, you were thinking of everyone who would come to faith in you and, and serve you. And follow after you. So as we gather around the table tonight, Jesus, would you give us just a little bit of that vision? So that we can see beyond ourselves. So that we can see beyond the, the little worries and the little stresses and the little fears. And the, and the times that it, it feels in our own life like, like the whole world is collapsing. The sky is falling. And maybe broaden our vision to, to remember that this is a really big story. And that you're in control of it. Be our vision. Help us to see more. And then to live for that vision. Help us to be willing to make changes now that that will impact the church generations from now. We ask all this in Jesus' name.